0: Hello, everyone, uh, and welcome to the latest episode of High Stakes. I'm Paige Soya, Managing Director of K Street Capital. And today's episode is going to be about tech policy, um, trends in tech policy, and specifically surrounding AI regulation, which obviously we've talked about many times on other episodes as it sort of reaches its tentacles into everything in the technology ecosystem at this point in time. But this will be a particularly interesting episode because of the two people we've gone on here. So we've got Adam Bostovich from WowYah, which is one of our portfolio companies that's specifically focused on AI, has a number of patents in the space and super compelling technology that we'll talk about in a second. And Jason Oxman, who's one of our longtime investors at K Street and who's also the head of the Information Technology Industry Council, which focuses entirely on this and especially right now on AI regulations. So this will be, I think, a very interesting conversation. Uh, but before we jump in, why don't I have you guys introduce yourselves? Adam, let's start with you.
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, I think you did a great intro, so thank you. Uh, my name is Adam, and I'm CEO and CTO over at YO, and we do have a lot of artificial intelligence. I started off a while back in the software space in, in the Bay, and I uh, kind of made my way into my own company and had a few startups before that that were successful, and then Started Y on the premise of AI, and in the beginning, it was extremely difficult to talk to anyone about AI, Uh, but now I think that the emotion has kind of, it's hit the market and everyone kind of understands it, so it's a little bit easier to speak about.
0: Thanks, Adam. And Jason?
1: Thanks, Paige. It's
2: great to be here with you and terrific to be here with Adam and looking forward to a uh, really stimulating discussion today. So I am the president and CEO of ITI, the Information Technology Industry Council. Uh, ITI was founded in 1916 as an advocacy business and policy organization on behalf of the technology industry. And obviously, the definition of the technology industry has changed a lot in the last 107 years. Uh, But ITI, as Paige noted, is very focused on technology policy and really helping policymakers here in the US and around the world set an appropriate environment for innovation. So Adam and his fellow entrepreneurs can launch these amazing products and services really looking to a conversation today about uh, how tech policy influences that environment and how we can make sure that uh, Adam and uh, all others uh, experimenting in this space have the environment they need to uh, to deploy these innovative new services.
0: Super cool. Thank you guys both for being here. Um, before we jump in and talk about the policy side of things, maybe let's just start by talking about AI in general. What's such a huge topic in BC right now? Um, and Adam, I'd like to start with you, and maybe you can share a little bit more about your technology specifically and how generative AI has played a big role in your company.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think for starters, just so everyone understands generative AI, maybe I start there a little bit. It started technically, like I'll put my technical CTO hat on. Um, Technically, it started with something called GANs. And that basically means that there's two AIs that argue against each other in order to find the right decision. And at the end of the day, what is outputted is a brain, like a mini brain. So it's not necessarily software. It's not necessarily hardware. It's a file that you can consider some type of specific brain. And so I kind of see the, the landscape before we get into us, uh, as WauYau as, as just a massive opportunity. There's been a lot of times like a, you know, Web3 where people kind of say the huge opportunity, but no one really understands it. I really do think that this opportunity is like nothing we've seen since probably the industrial revolution. I think that that's probably what we can compare it to economically. I think that it's going to turn manual labor into like mechanized automated labor, kind of like the industrial revolution. It's going to have a huge impact on culture and art, education, understanding what's, what's real and what's not. And I think it really will have a big impact on cultural dominance throughout the world. So as an example, when we train again, or now a generative AI, we're training it in English. And so the English language becomes kind of like the appropriated mind, if you will. And, and our culture seeps into that the rest of the world understands. So that's probably how I would compare generative AI and how are we using it? So it's a really good question. And I think what I can do is kind of start off with our newest product and explain it through that lens. So essentially we analyze, you know, hundreds of millions of minutes of video content for our clients. And what we did notice was that we could map human movement really, really well. And so our current product that we're going to launch here at the beginning of this week, our newest product line is actually a motion capture, Two dimensional to 3D. So you're watching a video and someone's moving like this and you can capture the movement and turn it into something that Hollywood and game companies can use. Right. So essentially getting rid of mocap studios, this, this long process of mocap studios and the artificial intelligence behind that is understanding the movement and then turning it into a file that people can use for video games or for movies. The generative AI part of that is something that's amazing. So when I said generative AI will fit culture, when we add our generative AI layer, we don't need any actors, we don't need any type of human interaction anymore to create video and content. So once we understand the movement, we run it through the generative AI. And just simply type in, I want this person to be doing yoga on the beach and the generative AI will produce someone on the beach doing a yoga movement and starting to speak about yoga. So the content creation industry is just going to have a huge upheaval. And this is just one of our products, right? Um, where we're just taking generative AI and, and doing something that's going to completely disrupt an industry. And that's content creation.
0: And Adam, one more thing that I think is worth pointing out is: can you talk a little bit about the CPUs and the GPUs and how that comes into play with your technology?
1: Yeah, this for sure. What I'm so talking about more and more. Yeah, absolutely. So for us specifically, we use CPUs to generate artificial intelligence and understand video. Most companies use GPUs, and a GPU is extremely costly. So as an example, I believe OpenAI, when they did ChatGPT, they spent half a billion dollars trying to process this, this new brain, if you will, for ChatGPT. And they used all GPUs and that's where, you know, NVIDIA, that's why their stock is going up, right? A lot of people are using GPUs, but it becomes extremely costly. And so if you can find a way to use a CPU as a cost savings, then it becomes more effective for everyone. So as an example, a GPU may cost. $5,000 $5,000 and a CPU, maybe $100. So we run all our stuff on, on CPU.
0: And I don't even know if there is regulation around that. Maybe that's something we'll talk about in a second, Jason, or maybe maybe you have thoughts on it. But before we get there, maybe you can share a little bit about your sort of investment philosophy around knowing what you know around policy and regulation, which was the big topic that we'll get into right after this. But maybe you can talk a little bit about how you view investing in generative AI type companies.
2: Yeah. And uh, speaking now as an individual, not as uh, ITI's CEO, you know, when I think about the investment landscape, you know, AI is, as Adam mentioned, all anybody really wants to talk about in technology right now. And it's been. It's been great to see, but also funny in a way, to see how many companies want to be AI companies, and not all of them are like Adam's company that actually can legitimately claim to be AI companies from before AI was a hype. Uh, so mm-hmm. that's, that's something that obviously is, uh, is important to pay attention to, uh, companies identifying themselves as AI. But I, I really, I think the landscape now is just so interesting because the computing power that Adam was talking about that's powering these large language models, that's powering these AI tools, it is just on a scale that's never been seen before. And of course, that's one of the reasons why this computing power is so expensive and why NVIDIA you know suddenly is a trillion-dollar company uh, that no one had heard of before the last year. I think it's really interesting to look at what AI empowers on behalf of customers, and, and Adam alluded to this as well. It's, it's, it's about the technology itself, but it's about, in this case, what movie studios can, can do with that technology. And I think that's the case across the AI landscape. These large language models are interesting tools in and of themselves chat GPT is fun to play around with. But I think the real interesting question for investors to ask themselves is what what use cases does AI make possible that were not possible beforehand? Uh, Whether it's, as Adam talked about, changing the way in which studios look at at movement, uh, or if you look at other industries, healthcare, I think is another one that a lot of uh, people have been talking about What can AI augment in the capabilities of surgeons when they're looking for tumors on screens that uh, the human eye might have uh, not been able to process? What can it do in lending and financial services to open up opportunities for access to banking systems to people who in the non-AI world might not have had access? Um, What can it do in uh, training and, and workforce development? To provide new learning capabilities that wouldn't have been available beforehand, I think those are the really interesting things. There are obviously companies that are deploying the AI tools, but what can be done with those tools? I think is is equally interesting. And then, as I know, we're going to talk about in the policy arena. You know, a lot of the questions that policymakers are asking about is about the the data that goes into developing these AI tools, um, how information is protected, how our information is used in generating and processing all of this information. That's one of the things that I think investors have to look at when companies are launching AI capabilities is uh, the data. Where does it come from? How is it generated? uh, How is it used?
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And maybe talk a little bit about some of the dangers of AI being unchecked and without regulation. What are some of the risks that we're starting to see more and more?
2: You know, with, uh, with all the attention paid to AI, there's a lot of good that comes of that. And there's a lot, of course, of questions that are asked by policymakers. Um, I thought Adam's comparison to the Industrial Revolution was particularly apt because, of course, we all know the term Luddite, uh, which refers generally to people who reject advances in technologies. The Luddites came out of the Industrial Revolution in, in England. Mm. They were followers of a guy named Luddite uh, who was worried about uh, workers in the fields uh, being replaced by new automation. And his followers set those new machines, the, uh, the cotton gins, on fire because they were worried about new technology. Uh, the modern day equivalent of the Luddites setting the uh, the cotton gins on fire are people who say that regulation is necessary because of the dangers of AI. And these are people who conflate the use of generative AI with what they saw in the Terminator movie or in two thousand and one a Space Odyssey or in The Matrix. Uh, and they mm-hmm. think that uh, AI, if left unchecked, will result in machines making autonomous decisions for themselves. And that's where we need to kind of back people down uh, or back from the ledge. Uh, and say, we're talking about things that generate images and texts and, and videos and, and, and the like when we talk about generative AI. And that's a, a, a long way away from the dangers that uh, that some suggest uh, we have to talk about. A, a lot of this, and I know this is something that uh, companies large and small have to deal with, is, is an education process. It's making sure that policymakers understand what AI is and what it isn't which is why I think it's great that Adam started off our conversation today just by defining our terms, because that's something that policymakers don't generally do. They kind of skip to the end uh, and say, how is AI going to destroy humanity? And and frankly, there have been some in industry who have helped feed that narrative. Uh, A few weeks ago, there was a letter that was generated by a number of industry participants calling for a six-month pause on the deployment of AI services because of these questions about what AI is going to mean to the future of society. And, and you know, candidly, I think that's that's inappropriate because you can say that any technology that's deployed is going to have impact on existing industries. And the answer is not to stop the deployment. The answer is to ask questions about how we can address any of the underlying concerns that some may have about what those mean, what those changes can uh, can bring. And there are policy solutions for that that don't require uh, a halt to the kind of innovation that's going to be so beneficial to so many people and across so many industries.
0: Yeah, and yeah. some of the things that. Now, oh, go ahead, Adam.
1: Yeah, I was I was gonna say, you know, sometimes we'll get in like philosophical debates here. It's really weird, um, you know, a bunch of tech nerds getting into a philosophical debate. But um, think about it this way: as far as like these mini brains and generative AI, just imagine for established companies, the conversation that could take place. You could create a generative AI, which is like ChatGPT, that's specifically for a law, based on, and they will based on Harvard law. And I could have mini Brain that reasons with me on my computer and tells me what to do in a legal situation, right? You could get rid of entire legal teams and just have a legal almost like a chat bot that that writes out your papers for you, tells you what to say in certain instances. So I picked legal because, you know, big companies, right? How would it really impact an established company? Someone like Uber that has like teams of lawyers um they could all disappear and and something like the you know globalization part of of the industrial revolution and that's where maybe people are getting concerned and i actually agree that it's definitely over concerned people are overconcerned concerned and trying to establish law before anything's really happened and i do think we need to take the advantage here that we've that we've taken advantage of in in you know geopolitics which is make sure that our information our culture dominates and our models are sent out to the world to use but but for established companies i mean you could imagine that we could the cost savings that could go into this is just is amazing
0: it's tremendous, and that's
1: where that's where some of the the the, i think that the congress will try to end up focusing which is jobs they always end up looking at jobs right
0: yeah i was wondering jason if that comes up a lot with some of these sort of Anti-AI arguments is just is, is jobs, really. Not 100%. so much the fear of what the technology is doing, but the fear that people are going to lose their jobs.
2: Uh, absolutely right. And Adam is right that uh, that's what policymakers care about because their constituents um, want to keep their jobs. And each uh, member of the House of Representatives in the United States has uh, more than 700,000 people who are looking to them to protect their jobs and make sure they have the jobs of the future. So that question comes up all the time. And it, and it's in the uh, AI process itself. Uh, companies that are deploying tools that may uh, eliminate coders because the AI can do the code for them. So you know, will we have software engineers in the future? That question comes up a lot. And it's, uh, as we were talking about before, it's what those tools are used for. Will will the Hollywood studios be laying everybody off? Because they don't need uh, programmers anymore. Uh, the AI can do it for them. Uh, you know, that's mm-hmm. why uh, the Hollywood writers are on strike right now, because they're worried about AI, uh, among other things, uh, worried about AI replacing their jobs as, uh, as writers. Actors are worried about AI using their images uh, instead of hiring them again and having to pay them uh, residuals. You can mention any industry and they're concerned about the, uh, the the job impact. So that is something that, that comes up a lot. And of course, it's true for any technology that jobs are in question. That was what the Luddites were concerned about. You know, when the car came on the scene, there were uh, not a lot of need for buggy whip manufacturers anymore. Every technology development that we've seen has had an incumbent industry concerned about what it means for them and has used the jobs argument as a way to get policymakers' attention. So we'll certainly see more of that going forward.
0: Yeah. And I think there's two sides to that coin because to me, that's an optimistic perspective. Because if some jobs go away, that leaves time for other jobs to be created that are more valuable and for us to be more productive in total as a society. So I don't know. Whenever I'm at work and I find another person or a thing that can do something better than me, I'm, I'm excited about that because that means, okay, I don't, I shouldn't be doing that anymore. I should, I should now be spending my time doing something else and adding more value in a different way. So. I understand there's fear around that, and I think that's worthy, but there's going to be a lot of other jobs and a lot of other technologies, I think, that end up being born out of this era, which is- And a great
2: example of that is the high-tech manufacturing jobs that the demand for chips is creating. AI, Mm -hmm. as Adam mentioned, is driving demand for compute power that has never been seen before, exponential need for GPUs, CPUs, other kinds of semiconductors that go into the computing power, the processing power that AI needs. So you're absolutely right, Paige. It creates the next generation of manufacturing jobs. Maybe we're not going to be doing the kind of more basic manufacturing in the U.S. that we have done historically, but the demand for chips is causing semiconductor companies to invest in fabs in the U.S., at a speed that we've never seen before, Intel, TSMC, TI, uh, Samsung, Skywater—they're all making announcements about chip manufacturing plants, and AI is driving a lot of that demand. It's creating a different kind of high-skilled job.
0: Exactly, it's super exciting. Uh, Adam, were you going to say something? Thing,
1: yeah, yeah, definitely. So I'm—I'm going to use you, page um, for startups, right? With the potential benefit for everyone. Just imagine—I like—I'm going to continue on the same concept of the, the, the mini brains, but. We it would definitely people and, and us in particular entrepreneurs and, and, um, people that, that kind of strive to build something or, or become your own person. Um, just imagine if I had Paige's brain sitting next to me all day, right. And I wanted to ask her questions because she had a particular experience or decision-making or advice that, that I just, I can't ping her all day asking questions. Paige could create, and, and this is something interesting, and I know it's theoretical, but Paige could create her own generative AI based on her experiences, decision making and advice, right? Like when I worked for, um, so I worked for at one point for banks and I was like, a, um, you know, blocked hackers and things like that for going into banks. But I also helped them build, um, software technologies at one point because they needed some assistance and, and I built a, an underwriting program for them. And essentially the underwriting program went like this, they give type in their information and then the, and then the system made the underwriting decision instead of the underwriter. Um, but that's like a, that was a an experienced decision-making and advice and that was a program, but, but basically you had a, a decision maker there for you that wasn't a person, but if you could wrap individuals into their own, um, their own experience and their own mind, you could essentially like sell that to people. And I, and I bring that up to resonate, which is. There's something in the business world that always interests me. They make their money work for them. And so like make your, have your money, make money for you. Right. And I think that that's the concept that, that tech is now going to have, which is have your tech make tech for you or have your tech make money for you. And if you, if you combine these two people, the content creator that puts his, his content on YouTube with advice. Um, if you take kind of that thesis where people go and watch a content creator to gain advice, and then you take the thesis of software development, which is, well, that content creator doesn't actually have to speak. You can actually have that content creator and all his opinions and all his decision-making as help on your computer. That's a concept that, you know, this personalized generative AI that could be deployed. So, uh, I think that the benefits could be just. Massive, and even if there's even if there's large layoffs in, in industry because of the legal team um getting laid off, a high-end legal um, advisor or a high-end legal person could essentially have their own company, which is just themselves. We all want to duplicate ourselves right in business so if you could duplicate yourself now all of a sudden yourself is a is a is a saAS product or something like that, so anyway, kind of wanted to idea. put that in there's all it's always doom and gloom with with AI but if you flip it and and take the entrepreneur mind, which is you know you're always looking for for every problem is actually just something to overcome, then there's there's definitely opportunity. And um, I just kind of want to throw that opportunity in there.
0: I love that idea. I, I wish I wish I could do that at some point. Hopefully, that will take form because especially when we talk to startups, right? We look at so many startups, hundreds a month, and we can't spend enough time on all of them. We can't even talk to all of them in a month. Uh, you know, with our bandwidth and team size, and it would just be really cool if there was some way we could. Um, But anyway, a conversation for a different day. Um, Jason, I'm curious if you can share. um, I know a lot has been going on in the policy world recently, especially with the EU passing their own AI Act. And, you know, I just would love to hear your thoughts on what what policy initiatives are being discussed and developed in the U.S. right now and where you see the direction of that going.
2: Yeah. So the EU actually did move first. As you mentioned, the AI Act was uh, passed by a pretty wide margin in the parliament in the EU just last month. Uh, It now moves to a trilogue discussion with the European Council, the European Commission, and they'll negotiate some changes, which hopefully will be to the better. Uh, The significant outcome in the EU AI Act is that it is going to regulate generative AI. The original version of that legislation did not include it. It was more focused on high-risk areas of AI, use of AI in healthcare, financial services, hiring, and the like. Uh, but it's much broader than it was before. And that's worth mentioning because often the U.S. looks to the EU where the U.S. hasn't yet acted. So our hope is that that doesn't become the model and we're working to get some changes in place in Europe. And the challenges for technology companies from startups to large companies is you can't deploy technology on a country-specific basis. You need to deploy a technology that meets the lowest common denominator for regulation. So the EU really could have an impact here. Now, here in the U.S., uh, currently, not only do we not have any consensus around legislation. But we also don't have consensus about who is in charge of regulating AI. So we've seen a number of agencies from NIST uh, within the uh, Department of Commerce to the OSTP, the Office of Science Technology Policy in the White House, um, to other cabinet agencies deploy AI regulatory roadmaps, voluntary in nature. In fact, you saw a number of companies uh, just agree to a White House roadmap a couple of days ago around voluntary consensus-driven approaches. So no concrete regulation of AI. On Capitol Hill, a number of bills have been introduced, a lot of briefings taking place, but again, no consensus there. I think uh, as with all other technologies, members of Congress are focused right now on trying to learn about what it is, which is obviously important, and learn about what the potential impacts are. You mentioned page jobs as an obvious focus, and that is certainly part of the discussion. Another area is privacy, data protection for consumers. The U.S. does not have, unlike a lot of jurisdictions around the world, does not have a federal privacy law. So there are a lot of questions about how consumers and copyright owners and others can protect their information that's used in development of uh, AI models. And uh, I think we'll see a lot of discussion continue around that. But the areas that are under focus right now are those high-risk areas. So uh, a lot of concern in, in Congress about use of AI uh, for lending to make sure it's not discriminatory, use of AI and medical decisions to make sure. People have good outcomes, use of AI and hiring to make sure people are not discriminated against. Uh, So a lot of focus is on potential harms in various areas. But again, uh, a lot of legislation introduced, uh, nothing passed yet.
0: I keep hearing about this, this thing that I don't fully understand called trustworthy AI. I know it's something that Google's pushing for and others are pushing for, but I don't really, how is that being defined?
2: Yeah. So the, the idea there is, as with other areas of technology, that in the first instance, companies that deploy AI are, are best positioned to do the right thing by their customers. And this has been a general approach that the technology industry has taken across time, that uh, it's one thing for regulators to say what companies need to do. It's, a, it's another thing for companies to endeavor to do the right thing in the absence of a regulatory regime. And with AI deployment happening at the pace that it's happening right now, Uh, It's very hard to imagine regulators catching up. And so the idea of trustworthy AI is based around the consensus of voluntary industry standards, companies deploying ethical AI because it's the right thing to do, because they best serve their customers by protecting their customers' interests. So a number of companies have, as you noted, made those kind of commitments publicly, agreed with the White House just uh, a couple of days ago, as I mentioned, to publish the standards by which they adopt ethical AI practices. There's a lot of consensus-driven standards activity. ITI is a uh, ANSI-accredited standards body ourselves, and we're working on AI standards through our Insights Standards Development Organization. So there's a lot of this happening uh, in industry. The, the basic idea here is that industry is not waiting for government regulation to tell us how to do the right thing, but uh, making sure to do the right thing, particularly in a competitive landscape, where these companies will use their ethical standards and their trustworthiness and their their brands to compete against each other in a uh, rapidly evolving space. So that that's what they're looking at there.
0: Okay, and does that inc- I guess that includes things like what you sort of mentioned or related to earlier, publishing where the, the the AI models are training from, what data they're using, ingesting, and actually like telling the public what where that's coming from. I see. Um, okay, and then I guess I'm curious for either of you if you have thoughts on You know, if there have been other transformative technologies in the space that have had regulation and successfully so, and if those models can be applied to what we're doing, we're trying to develop in regulation for AI.
2: I'd give a a financial services example if I could. um, And Adam knows this space well, and I used to run the trade association of the payments industry. And that's one area that has done AI, I think, very well. So I'll give the example of fraud prevention. The card networks, uh, Visa and MasterCard principally have deployed uh, AI technology that really looks at a lot of data points to make sure that your transaction is a, an actual transaction. So a, a great example of that is your mobile device, which of course is usually with you. We all know that uh, we're more likely to go home and get our phone than our wallets. So uh, if Visa and MasterCard have information uh, about where your mobile phone is, they can compare that to the use of your card. To make sure that it's actually you using it. Because if your card and your mobile device are being used, to, are located in the same place, it's most likely not a fraudulent transaction. They also use AI to compare your transaction to your other history. Uh, are you a daily coffee drinker? Well, if it's a coffee shop in Prague, even though you've never been to Prague before and your phone's there, it's probably you. So I think fraud prevention is one area where AI has been and will continue to be very successfully used in financial services.
1: Yeah, I, I uh, completely agree. And I think that that's a good actually good concept to discuss for me, which is, I think that the policymakers, they always end up focusing very heavily on culture, cultural items that they try to regulate, right? Um, they try to regulate bias or ethics. Um, and you had brought this up prior to the financial conversation. Um, they, they're always trying to regulate culture. And it's very, it's very interesting and very hard to do, right? So on geopolitical scale, you want our culture to be passed throughout the world, like almost like the, the dollar works as a base currency. So you want your culture to be passed out. And maybe that's why they focus on cl- culture and bias and things. But in essence, um, you know, bias is intellect, right? I think personally. Um, so it's very hard to take bias out of intellect because they're one and the same but they tend to focus on that and not focus on what you described, which is using it to actually do something like fraud prevention that has a, that has a result that can be beneficial. It has a targeted result to be beneficial, uh, something that's kind of thought out and, and has a specific end goal uh, rather than trying to do something that's almost impossible, which is, which is regulate culture through technology. That's more the end of, um, you know, Something crazy like a you know social credit score or something, but I think that they have concerns that are valid, and the concern that they have that are valid is probably Congress should be worried about fake everything, right? Because if I can fake you and I can fake pretty much a video or a movie or speech, and it's already here, I can fake presidential campaigns. It's coming up in a year. I can fake people saying things on the news, and whether it's like foreign governments throwing that you know, that type of culture war in our environment. But I think that that is one part of the culture conversation that they need to focus on more, which is the geopolitical side of it rather than the culture formulating in the U S and then that being a problem inside our AI. I don't know if that resonates with the audience, but with, with faking everything, people could literally get kind of bored. Like they do a banner ads on the side of of the internet, right? You just stop looking at it. So what if everything is faked and you don't know what's real? You stop, you stop listening at some point. So those are real culture problems that I think we can discuss, but I don't think you can regulate that. I think you have to regulate things like they do in the financial industry, which has specific use cases and specific problems that you can address.
2: Yeah, I think that's a, a great area for policymakers to focus on. As Adam mentioned, the the idea of regulating the tool doesn't get you where you need to be. It's regulating the behavior that gets you where you need to be. And that's been our argument as to AI uh, policy making. You know, Yes, it's absolutely the case that AI can be used for things that we don't want it used for. But it's also the case that a pencil and paper can be used for things we don't want it to be used for. A cell phone can be used for things we don't want it to use for. Uh, a car. Um, so all these new technologies have faced this kind of ethical quandary. Uh, But the key is, and this is particularly important, I think, in in AI regulation conversations, is to recognize what the behavior is you're trying to impact. So I'll give another example. Uh, There's been this idea that AI used in lending or hiring can lead to discrimination uh, if the information that the AI is programmed with uh, includes historical discrimination. But uh, you can discriminate in hiring or lending using a pencil and paper, and we don't outlaw those tools, and we shouldn't outlaw the AI tool. What we should do is remember that it is already illegal, regardless of the tool you use, to discriminate in hiring or lending. And AI actually holds a promise to eliminate the kind of human-based decision-making that has historically led to lending and hiring biases when human beings look at a particular characteristic or a last name or a location on a resume or on an application and make decisions based on that that they shouldn't make. AI holds a promise to eliminate those kind of things. So, targeting the behavior, particularly in high risk areas, is really important. Not holding the tool responsible for it, but holding the people that use the tool in an mm-hmm. improper way responsible.
0: That makes yeah, a lot totally. of sense. That's a great point. Let's shift over to how these regulations might or will impact founders and investors in the space. So, like Adam, I'm thinking about your company and obviously we invested and, and I'm a fund manager and Jason makes investments into companies like yours. You know, when we're thinking about all this stuff, do, how do, are you viewing the potential risks of regulation for your company? Are there things that you are fearful about?
1: Um, not really. I think I'm more fearful that they they continue to raise rates and make, um, you know, the the money supply, tighten the money supply. But whatever we do, either we're going to deploy artificial intelligence or someone else's. And I think at the end of the day, that'll win over. And it's difficult to get anything passed in at the federal level on Congress anyway. So I'm not too worried. I think locally, that's where I I end up getting worried. California or particular states pass laws individually. We've seen it in ad tech with our other business, which is, you know, privacy concerns in Europe. They pass a law that affects American ad tech companies because of user information. So that's where I think regulation will cause problems for startup. It's like a cross-regulation rather than a direct from our federal government. So let's say generative AI, right? You have a massive data set that you want to work with and California puts in the law that says, Hey, you need to show everyone what your data that you're training on is. Now you're getting rid of the IP, right? Um, so that's the danger is them saying to you, you have to give up your IP to someone else because we feel that it's bad to do what you're doing, even though the effect you're having isn't bad, right? So maybe build something that's really, really good and everyone loves it. But because it, it has some type of, um, flip side, which is you trained on data that people don't want you trained on. You have to show your data. And now all of a sudden you're getting rid of the startup's IP. So it's, that's, that's what's, that's what scares me. Okay.
0: And I guess that is sort of what is happening in Europe right now is that. Right, Jason. Right,
2: yeah. Yeah, uh, privacy is a great area to to think about, and and Europe also took the lead there with uh, GDPR uh, that was passed a number of years ago, and the United States can't get its act together on a federal privacy law, which is which leads to exactly what Adam is talking about. Uh, Again, an entrepreneur, particularly in the technology space, doesn't want to have to worry about whether all fifty states will allow their product. I mean, it's just absurd to think about right. that. And yet, with the lack of a U.S. national privacy law, it leads to exactly the kind of circumstances that Adam's talking about, where you have specific states that adopt regulations. And what entrepreneur has the time or the resources or, frankly, the, the business acumen to adapt a model to 50 different regulatory regimes? So privacy is a great area, and that is one big gap Uh, in the regulatory regime here in the U.S., a single national privacy law. And the European impact, as you alluded to, Paige, is the kind of startup activity that you're investing in and and k Street Capital is making possible just doesn't exist in Europe because the regulatory approach there and the policy environment there is just not conducive to technology startups the way it is here. But the risk factor, as Adam mentioned, is that state-by-state regulatory approach, particularly around privacy that makes it difficult for entrepreneurs in particular to get their products to market here in the US.
0: So do you think there's certain industries or sectors then where generative AI or regulation around it will have a bigger impact than others? Yeah.
2: yeah. I, I think, uh, you know, we were talking about before the, the discussion taking place in two different areas. One, the tools themselves, which technology companies large and small are uh, investing in uh, the second is the the customers of those uh, those companies whether it's the the content creators or agriculture healthcare finance etc uh, et etc cetera, et cetera. I, I do think the regulatory regime will really impact the success of AI in different uh, vertical segments the extent to which uh, the u s government uh, chooses to focus its uh, legislative and regulatory approach on sector specific uh, areas is a is a real risk um, mm-hmm. Uh, but I think the, where we are in the AI deployment cycle and in the startup uh, investment in AI in particular, uh, the, the, the real risk is, is making sure that those companies can, can get to market. And those are more basic considerations, like making sure they can access computing power at a reasonable price, making sure they can get the talent here in the U.S. and, and from around the world that uh, has the, the technical savvy and the know-how to do the work so those startups can, can take place here. We all know the story of how more than half of the largest technology companies in the U.S. were either founded by or run today by first-generation or second-generation immigrants to the U.S. So we need to do a better job there with the workforce and immigration policy. I think it's making sure that the supply chain works correctly so that um, you know Adam can get the processing power at a reasonable price and doesn't get stuck behind car companies and waiting for chips to be uh, produced. I think the uh, global supply chain issue is also matched by global investment questions. There's a lot of concern uh, about whether the US is going to impose trade, digital trade and physical trade restrictions on US companies that want to sell to the rest of the world, including, you know, frankly, China's a big market. There are a lot of challenges as Adam alluded to earlier with how China is a as a government does business, but it's also a country of 1.3 billion people and US companies should be able to sell there. We also need to do trade agreements around the world, you know, the Biden administration quite candidly has not done a very good job of engaging in trade around the world. And we need to make sure that global markets are are, are open to U.S. technology companies. So I think there are a lot of uh, policy questions that may not be AI-specific, but particularly for startups that are looking to start their work here, we need to fix. The last one I'd mention is tax policy. You know, The U.S. has historically uh, allowed R&D investment to be favorably tax-treated here in the U.S., Uh, In 2017, the Tax Cut and Jobs Act changed that. So uh, five-year amortization is now the rule for uh, R&D investment instead of uh, one year, which was the rule uh, last year and before. We need to fix that so companies can uh, invest in in research and development here in the U.S. So that's a long list of issues. Not all of them are AI-specific, but they're all Mm -hmm. incredibly important to the startup ecosystem and technology innovation that we want to take place here in the U.S.,
0: and don't get me started on tax policy. I could do an entire episode just on that one topic. Um, lots of thoughts there. But anyway, bringing it back to the seed stage, you know, we're seed investors. We invest in companies, usually in their first round of funding We're or second, or maybe it's an early series A, but that's pretty much when we first, that's what we're, type of companies we're looking for. And they they've got seven to nine years to go probably before they exit, right? So if we're thinking about that and companies that are utilizing AI as a major component of what they do, and we and and I guess the question is: Do we think there is material risk in regulation in certain sectors in the next seven to nine years that would materially impact the value of those businesses when they do come to like they might be super valuable right now in the next couple of years, but if this pol- policy changes, you know, is that going to p- impact their ability to exit?
2: Yeah, I'll start on that. Adam's obviously got uh, much more uh, to offer on that uh, as an actual CEO and and founder of a company, but. Um, you know the environment here in the US uh, is enormously important generally but the challenge with policy predictions i have a hard time predicting the next 7 to 9 hours of what congress is going to do let alone the next uh, 7 to 9 years so i would uh, i would say at a high level what we don't want to see is the US turn into the the kind of european model that we were talking about before you know, Europe has, we've talked about privacy regulation, we've talked about AI regulation, but I would say generally the, the European approach to technology regulation has been one that's been, made it very difficult for startups and large companies to operate in Europe. And we just haven't seen the kind of startup environment in Europe. And, and European regulators and policymakers uh, will admit this publicly, that they're not seeing the kind of startup activity there that they want to see. And what they want to see is what's here in the U.S., and the reason the startup in, uh, environment has been so successful in the U.S. is not only because of the policy environment that uh, encourages investment, but also on the subject of exit, it's that there are large technology companies in the U.S. that look to the startup ecosystem for their next great ideas. And you know there are obviously a number of ways that exits can take place, but one of the most prominent recent years has been an exit to larger companies. And the reason we have that ecosystem of large successful technology companies that can make those kind of startup investments here in the US is because we take a different approach to regulation than, uh, than Europe takes. So the kind of it, macro issues that are, I know the subject for another uh, podcast, the, the tax policy issues, the workforce issues, the regulatory environment, the kind of uh, approach that, that we want Congress to take and we want regulators to take is one that seven to nine years from now makes it a lot easier for startups to find the kind of exits that they want, even either to the market or to acquisition by a a larger technology company that wants to promote that kind of startup ecosystem. I think that's important to maintain.
0: Great. do you have any thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, for sure. So I think that if we set up because I, I, by the way, we love K Street. So um, so (laughs) if we take K Street as an example, um, good people. Good um, investment strategy uh, we like everything about um, what you what you've put together there and uh, we even like uh, I want to focus on like the syndicate um, mm-hmm. approach. Yep. I think so you have a syndicate and then you have an investment um, investment fund right
0: That's right and
1: I think that that the the investment fund yep. plus syndicate approach is a is a good one for artificial intelligence um, companies. And why I say that is because I, I believe that as, so there's two things. One, I think that the VC, now this is just a dumb prediction, right? But the, the, the high-end VCs won't be able to move as fast as artificial intelligence startups. So I think that they're going to end up going into the B and C rounds and the syndicate, you know, fund approach where you can make a series of investments in, in AI companies quick and easy and confidently is probably going to end up being a better model for the stage that you're at, right? Whereas a VC, when I sit in front for a series A or something, you do, you both do the same diligence, but they're so focused on the return at the end, I believe that, and this angel, at least in California, this like, you know, the, the unicorn that they're trying to all capture that they're not going to be able to deploy their funds fast enough, and they're going to end up in this B and C round because it's more, they're more competent, they, they can return a unit bar. And the syndicate approach, whereas you can, like I said, you can deploy capital. I think that the same thing in the, um, the money supply, um, is the same thing in the tech thoughts that I and then I tried to explain earlier, which maybe I didn't do well, but the velocity of money, right? Um, so if, if the velocity of money creates more revenue uh, the passing back and forth of money faster creates more revenue generation. Um, the same thing is gonna happen with artificial intelligence where there's gonna be a lot of companies that, that are gonna explode onto the scene and spreading your money out is probably gonna be very valuable, uh, because there's gonna be a lot that are going to succeed. So I think that that, what you have is probably a better approach than the VC approach in the future. And the velocity of money and the velocity of artificial intelligence, or at least the the, the speed at which new companies are going to come up. And even even our strategy here at Wauya is we're able to take one technology and deploy multiple companies off of it if we really, truly wanted to. So our new product could essentially become a small startup company that can get funded itself. And that's because there's this one extremely powerful artificial intelligence that can do so many things. And you can turn around so many different products or, or uh, investable opportunities and, but those are all going to be the quick, you know, is this going to succeed in a, in a certain amount of, of time frame, you know, the three to five years, and then can the capital be deployed at that, at that rate, the same, the same rate that startups can, can achieve success in AI, I think.
0: Mm-hmm. I don't yeah, think don't get sense. me, don't get me wrong. We're definitely here to make money, but I think, uh, the speed at which you can deploy and the diversity of which you can deploy it is going to matter a lot in this space. Um so that's an interesting perspective.
1: But that would um, that would get over regulation too, right? Like like say AI and medical or something, there's already regulation there. Um so you'd at least be able to see what's coming down uh, regulations, you know. Change oh yeah. by that's minute, why, so, that's that's
0: that's why it's um, so interesting with our investors like Jason and many others in the group who are very involved all the time in in this landscape, and have an opinion as to as to the direction it's going when we make these investments. Obviously, you can't predict seven to nine years out, but predicting far enough ahead to make moves at the right time is is all you really need to do in this game. So, I know we're coming up on time here, but any any final thoughts,
1: Jason? Go for it. All right.
2: Well, Paige, you know, predicting regulatory outcomes is is often difficult, <laughs> but I think the most important thing. To look for in if we're talking about the US policy environment is what are members of Congress really looking to act on? You know, right now we're in the information gathering stage, a lot of hearings, a lot of discussions, a lot of briefings that we're all participating in on Capitol Hill as they try to learn about what AI is. But what we'll eventually see, I think, and, and Paige, you've, you've kind of pointed us in this direction already, is the specific industries that may receive the most regulatory scrutiny and, and most focus. And Adam mentioned medical as one, and that's certainly one that's a highly regulated area. And there's no reason to believe that AI will be any different in that particular area. Financial services banks are very heavily regulated. Uh, there's no reason to believe there won't be uh, a lot of scrutiny about what AI means in that regulated space. Um, so I do think it's going to eventually settle down to a more industry-specific approach to regulation around AI. And, and I would uh, pay closer attention to those highly regulated areas as a place that Congress and uh, and the regulatory bodies would probably look to start.
0: That's great. Thank you.
1: Yeah, you my my final thoughts yeah. would be uh, I think that this is a, a very good opportunity for anyone listening on the podcast to get involved i think that ai has finally hit the place where investors should invest confidently so i would definitely leave that, out, that remark which is you know it's, it's been tough knowing artificial intelligence and having no ears to to chat with but now i think everyone knows what's happening if it's got if it's gone all the way to congress that means that there is massive momentum right and i think that this is the perfect time right And
0: my final Final closing thought is also just a question for you, both of you, but mostly you, Jason. Is there a, a resource or a, a, a certain network that startups can go to and investors can go to if they're seeking guidance on compliance and AI policy?
2: Yeah, this is, uh, this is a, a, both a, an easy one and a hard one. The, the, the easy part of it is there are a lot of small startup focus groups. ITI is not one of them. We are, uh, we're a large company uh, association, but there are a lot of small uh, focused groups that work on AI policy issues and are more uh, open to to smaller companies. TechNet is one of them that works with a lot of small startups. The the hard one is, uh, you know, again, predicting the future is hard. But as you're thinking through the the business plan and the potential uh, for regulation, there are a lot of uh, consulting firms and, and law firms in DC that are very focused on uh, on, on uh, these issues. But uh, just reading actually about what hearings are taking place and, and reading it in the popular press is fine uh, or the trade press is even better. Um, just to see I what do, Congress, so. that's, that's worthwhile too.
0: Great, it's incredibly helpful. Well, thank you both so much for taking the time. I really appreciate this and uh, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for tuning in. And if you enjoyed it, please leave us a rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. Thanks.